Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Atsuka. I wanted to welcome you to episode 95 of ADHD for Smartass Women, which is brought to you by Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, the six-step system that shows you how to fall in love with your ADHD brain. If you'd like more information, join our waitlist at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash waitlist. We will be starting A-OK again at the beginning of next year, but let's get started with our topic today. So when people think of the stereotypical ADHD person, first of all, they never think of a woman or a girl, do they? They see a boy who's energetic, who's constantly moving, who's probably talking a lot, climbing the walls, maybe he's getting into trouble. They're hyperactive, right? So that doesn't square with someone who struggles with their weight. But studies show that ADHD symptoms may trigger serious weight problems. Research shows that those that struggle with obesity are five to ten times more likely to have ADHD. You know, this has even more significant implications for girls and eating disorders and disordered eating. Most of the early studies on ADHD, they were conducted on men or preteen boys. They didn't even look at eating disorders. So the link between ADHD and eating disorders and disordered eating has been overlooked for so long. And you know, there's a fantastic book, Understanding Girls with ADHD. That's the title of it. And it's by ADHD experts Kathleen Nadeau, Ellen Lippman, and Patricia Quinn. I know that Nadeau and Lippman have ADHD. I'm not sure about Quinn. But anyway, this book cites two fairly recent studies of adolescent girls with ADHD. So in the first study, girls with ADHD were found to be 3.6 times more likely to develop an eating disorder than girls without ADHD. They were also 5.6 times more likely to develop bulimia and 2.7 times more likely to develop anorexia. In the second study, they discovered that if you were impulsive and you were also diagnosed with combined type ADHD, so you have symptoms of both hyperactivity and inattention, that was the best predictor of an eating disorder in girls. 
horrifying, isn't it? You know, and I have been wanting to do a podcast on eating disorders and disordered eating since discovering this information back when I recorded podcast number 21, (laughs) which was about a year and a half ago. But I was really concerned about causing harm. I know how serious eating disorders are and how important it is that we get it right. And so I wanted to make sure that I found someone who was not only an expert in treating eating disorders, an expert in disordered eating, but I also wanted that person to be a woman who also has ADHD, and this was a big one for me, who also has personal experience with this subject, because I believe that it is difficult to understand anything fully unless you have real lived experience in it. So after a year and a half of searching to no avail, I lucked out and my guest actually came to me and introduced herself. So now I would like to introduce you to Alita Storch. Alita is an anti-diet dietitian therapist, and certified body trust provider who specializes in eating disorders, autoimmune conditions, and ADHD. Her work is centered around helping folks move away from diet culture and instead develop an intuitive, trusting, compassionate relationship with food and movement. She firmly believes that everyone is the expert of their own body. God, I love that, Alita. When she's not focused on her work, she can typically be found skiing or foraging for mushrooms in the mountains, snuggled on the couch with her dog, partner, and a good book, or making a creative mess in the kitchen. Welcome, Alita. Hi, Tracy. Thanks so much for having me on today. Absolutely. Did I get all of that right? Yes, you did. That all sounds great. Wonderful. So I had the pleasure of speaking with Alita last week, and I rarely, if ever, interview my guests before they come on. In fact, I can't even remember the last time that I did because I like the spontaneity, right? But again, I knew how important the subject was, and I just really wanted to make sure that we got it as right as we possibly could. And so what I'd like to add is that I was so impressed with Alita's calm, her measured responses to my questions, her clear concern and love for not only the subject, but also for her clients. And you know what, Alita, I really love that your goal was to help your clients develop a compassionate and trusting relationship with food and their body. And you do this by introducing them to value-centered living. And for me, values is where everything should start, especially for ADHD women. So it just makes so much sense to me. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'm really excited to be on. So before we dive into eating disorders and disordered eating, can you share with us the circumstances around your ADHD diagnoses? Like when were you diagnosed? What were your symptoms? That kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. So I definitely exhibited symptoms of ADHD from a super young age. Um, As a kid, I would forget to bring my backpack to school and I would often forget to eat. I would lose things. My room was a huge mess. My parents were hippies and they didn't really... um, Not that they didn't believe in ADHD, but it wasn't really something that they had considered or thought about. So they actually had me put into the gifted and talented program, which was helpful um, because it addressed some of the boredom, but not necessarily the organization issues or the inattention. 
I actually wasn't diagnosed until grad school when I was really struggling with getting all of my work done and basically struggling with adulting. And I went and worked with a psychiatrist and finally got the diagnosis. And it relieved so much pressure for me, made so much sense. And it was really helpful in getting me through grad school. So did you have any of, and this is typical, when we do well in school, it can be that we get to a point where school just gets harder and harder, and that's when we really start to struggle. It sounds like for you, it was more of the other things, like you said, adulting and just life things. Was school and grades, was that ever a problem? I did really well in school. I think that I just naturally had a knack for what I was learning. I also, I played three sports and I skied in school. And so I think a lot of my energy was put into that. And that was also very helpful. Um, but then in grad school, it was sort of at a different level where I was um, really having to perform and really having to like churn out really good work. And I think that's where I bumped into like not, not getting as good of grades or, or struggling with the achievement piece. Yeah, that makes sense. So did you have any other of the comorbid conditions that, you know, come along with ADHD? Or yeah, definitely. And yeah. What were they? So I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression in college. Um, and actually, when I started being treated for ADHD, I found that it was less of depression and more of the ADHD and that my depression was alleviated when I was able to manage the symptoms of ADHD. But definitely anxiety. That's a big one. Um, yeah. And so depression was clearly a result of your ADHD and just kind of mm -hmm. trying to stay on top of everything. Was anxiety as well or was anxiety kind of separate? I've been anxious since I was a little kid. And I think that that is part of who I am. Uh, I think a lot of that is like perfectionism and achievement orientation, um, definitely some like social anxiety. I imagine that ADHD exacerbates that and makes it worse, but uh, yeah, I still have anxiety even though I'm like doing my best to manage the ADHD. Yeah, got it. So what changed once you were diagnosed? So that's a really good question. I mean, the depression piece, right? Like I didn't have to struggle so much with that. I feel like I also just developed more awareness of how my ADHD symptoms were impacting my life and found tools that actually were helpful for managing those symptoms. So I think I was trying to use tools that were helpful for neurotypical brains and feeling really frustrated because those tools weren't helping me. So when I realized what was going on, I was actually able to seek out tools that worked for my brain. And I think also identifying the strengths of ADHD was really helpful for me because I was able to lean into them a lot more. And I think this has led to me being more compassionate with myself. And that's led to less falling apart, um, feeling overwhelmed, basically like giving up, I'm able to be a lot more successful in general. You have two masters, right? Mm-hmm, I do. And what are they in? It's an umbrella masters of nutrition and the sub masters, the first is in clinical health psychology and the second one is in dietetics. So to be a dietitian. Okay, so why did you decide to choose 
that area as your field of study, basically nutrition and food and health? Um, because I wanted to make my life much harder. Uh, <laughs> no, I, um, so I actually, I struggled with an eating disorder in college and I met with a dietitian and a therapist who were incredible and life, it was a life-changing experience being able to work with these two women who collaborated in their work together. And I knew that I wanted to work in a helping profession. I was kind of afraid of going into dietetics because of like the science piece and feeling like it was gonna be too much work and I was gonna fall behind. So I initially chose to go into therapy with the intention of working with eating disorders. And the program that I went into was nutrition so that I could just at least get a little bit of that. And I ended up just adding the dietetics program because I figured why not, why not do both and be able to help people with mental health and with food at the same time. So it sounds like I always say the best purposes are those that give meaning to your past. It sounds like this was the perfect example of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So can you explain to me, so we've got eating disorders and then we have disordered eating. Can you explain the difference and where is the line and all that? Yeah, definitely. So eating disorders is more of a clinical term. So there's the, the DSM um, diagnostic manual and an eating disorder basically checks all of the boxes. One of the issues with that is that the DSM was created by, you know, educated white cis males. So oftentimes people are left out of those diagnostic categories. So I prefer the term disordered eating because it's more inclusive. It takes into account people who maybe don't meet all of the criteria, but still really struggle with food. And it takes into account people who can't maybe access the possibility of getting diagnosed. I guess the biggest line clinically would be the amount of distress that it causes in a person's life or how much it gets in the way of living, like you said, like a values-driven life. Um, I would say probably most women in the United States at least struggle with some sort of disordered eating. It's not true for everybody, but just being in our culture and being in a female body makes it really, really difficult to have a trusting relationship with food. Okay. So why are eating disorders so prevalent in ADHD women? Yeah. The way that I see it is um, that the eating disorders kind of fall into two different groups in ADHD. So the first group, the eating disorder functions as a way of making up for important human needs that aren't being met, or at least like don't feel like they're being met for someone with ADHD. And so these human needs are a sense of control, adequacy, competence, accomplishment, um, that those are difficult to experience when struggling with ADHD. And those things can often be met with food. So that's the first group. The second group is when the disordered eating patterns are actually a result of the actual symptomology of ADHD. So things like people with ADHD often experience more emotional dysregulation and emotional soothing can come through food because it actually leads to dopamine release. 
things like inattention and difficulty with tasks, starting and completing tasks, poor organization and time management, forgetfulness, all of those things can get in the way of adequately feeding ourselves. Um, and I, there's a whole list I can go down, um, but that's sort of that second group. So that's like the executive dysfunction deficit part of it, the self-regulation. Yep, yep exactly. Okay. And I guess like one other thing that might be helpful to mention too is stimulant medication can also exacerbate eating disorders um, just due to like causing poor appetite. It can often lead to weight loss. So that's maybe, yeah, one other piece of it. You know, I've also read accounts, and I think I've actually heard women in our group talk about the opposite of that as well, where they started on stimulant medication and they had a serious eating disorder and it literally resolved itself. Have you heard of that? I have not. Well, yeah, maybe not in that way, but I do wonder if the resolution of some of the symptoms of ADHD are actually more of the result of the resolution of the eating disorder. Okay. What yeah. about, and you know, I'm thinking of reward deficiency syndrome. You are familiar with that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's basically, as I see it, or as I know it, is basically a disconnect in the brain reward cascade. So, mm -hmm. and you know, that's what we have with ADHD. And so we don't feel the same amount of satisfaction once we get the reward so someone who struggles with weight they don't get the same satisfaction from food that someone who doesn't struggle with food gets and so you kind of keep going back looking for that satisfaction and that that's actually how eating disorders can also start is that true um yeah so it sounds like you're talking about um sort of like the novelty seeking behavior that comes with adhd that Oftentimes, um, I'll find that some folks with ADHD will will move towards a certain type of food um, because it provides more reward. And because of that, we'll actually miss out on other nutrients, right? Like won't get variety, won't get balance because they're constantly looking for foods that are most rewarding. Right. So we become driven to seek substances and or behaviors, right, to get the dopamine that's missing in that reward pathway. Yeah, and like that can be exacerbated by not getting enough food to begin with, that our bodies actually adjust to increase that reward that comes from foods that are like higher in, in sugar and fat. And it's actually a survival mechanism that's really important um, and is part of like our body's wisdom. You know, and I, I know that that whole RDS, that can lead to all different kinds of addictions, but, you know, unlike alcohol or drugs or nicotine, we have to eat. We can't just remove ourselves from them completely, which I would think is what is so hard about food. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a conversation I have so often with clients. And I think it's important too to name that food is not an addiction. The reward that we get from food actually activates different pathways than say like alcohol or cigarettes or drugs. And like you said, like we have to activate that pathway multiple times a day in order to stay alive. So that definitely can create distress and turmoil for, for people who are in the recovery process. 
that actually makes a lot of sense when you word it that way. So that's why we can struggle with disordered eating. What can we actually do about it? Yeah, that is a great question. And that is where I have been sort of building an approach that is specifically tailored to ADHD and disordered eating because there isn't really one that exists. There are approaches to managing ADHD. There are approaches to recovery from disordered eating and eating disorders. But to have the two of them combined, I haven't found anything that is comprehensive or effective. So the approach that I use is similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a pyramid of food needs that is met from the bottom to the top. So the bottom of the pyramid has regularity and consistency. The second tier is adequacy or enough. The third tier is variety. The fourth tier is pleasure and satisfaction. And the fifth tier is gentle nutrition. The approach requires identifying like which of these needs are not being met and then starting at the lowest unmet need by addressing barriers and experimenting with ways that the need can be met and then working up each layer to the top and the top is gentle nutrition. One of the issues with nutrition work is that everyone wants to function in what I, I'll refer um, to here as gentle nutrition or eating for health and well-being. But the problem is, is that this can only happen when someone is getting enough food on a consistent basis with plenty of variety, pleasure, and spontaneity. So it's sort of this like going back to basics. How do we make sure that you are eating every three to four hours throughout the day, that you're actually getting your energy needs met, that you have lots of variety and novelty and foods that provide reward before really thinking about like targeting specific foods for for supporting the brain or mood or energy. Does that make sense? So does that mean that they have to satisfy that pyramid, all of the things before they get up to the gentle nutrition? Yeah, that's correct, Tracy. Okay. And so can you go through those levels again? Totally. It's a, it's a pretty complex model and it's based out of several different models that I've kind of globbed together. So the first layer which is like the very basic needs is regularity and consistency. And this can get interrupted by forgetting to eat or ignoring hunger cues, being in a restrict and binge cycle. So any kind of dieting can actually interrupt the ability to have um, regularity and consistency. I really struggled with the I'll get to that later mentality and then not actually ever getting to it. And the goal of this layer is eating every three to four hours every single day. So we'll come up with tools and experiments to try to make sure that this is happening. So adequacy, um, so forgetting to eat all day long and only eating dinner or not having time to go to the store. So then there's no food in the house. Those sorts of things get in the way of, of having adequate intake. And so the goal there is to meet the estimated energy needs while still maintaining that consistency and regularity. And so sometimes with clients, we'll use meal planning. We will talk about scheduling in time to go to the grocery store, 
having really easy go-to meals for when like energy or mental mental stamina is low. So oftentimes that means relying on, you know, easy grab and go like frozen foods, deli items, that sort of thing in order to make sure that that you're getting enough. The next layer is variety and we see um, oftentimes with something called avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder, which is a newer diagnosis and is super common with ADHD, that there's a higher incidence of picky eating and high sensitivity to tastes and textures um, and sort of like this overwhelm that happens. So then the types of foods that are eaten become really limited. So that, that's like one example of where, where someone might not get enough variety. The other is that need for immediate gratification that we talked about where, you know, if you're always seeking things that are highly rewarding, you might miss out on, on other foods. And then avoidance of certain food groups because of diet culture beliefs. And so one example would be, um, and I'm gonna put this in quotes, like carbs are bad for my brain function, which is not true that can limit variety. So the goal there is just to increase the types and diversity of food intake in order to promote balance, which will support brain and mood and emotional function. Can I ask you about picky eating? Um, Mm -hmm. Is that something that you find um, is more common among those with ADHD? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's been found to be more common with ADHD and with autism. And a lot of that is the like the interoceptive awareness for ADHD, which is sort of like being able to kind of tune into your different body's signals and sensations can be both heightened and decreased. So with picky eating, it's, you know, the, the bitter foods are like 10 times as bitter often for someone with ADHD than for someone with a neurotypical brain. And so it was only recently acknowledged that, oh, this isn't just like picky eating or people being a pain in the butt. This is real. And that's been so helpful for so many of my clients to to have that validation um, and then to be able to kind of work through that. You know, that's so interesting that you say this because as everyone knows, I have a teenage son with ADHD mm-hmm. and he was so picky, but weirdly picky. Like he would eat a whole plate of sashimi he would eat a salad, but you couldn't mix like the pasta sauce with the pasta. And so he did all of his own research. And he's actually the one who came to me and presented the fact that it's not that he's being a pain because the rest of the family will eat anything, right? Right. It's not that he's being a pain. It's that his taste buds are different. And he, you know, tastes the bitterness more. Like he just, everything is more intense. So yeah, yeah. I find this so interesting that you're he saying He sounds this. like a smart kid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Go on. Yeah. Oh, no, you're fine. So I guess the, the next layer, the one that comes before gentle nutrition is, it's my favorite layer to work on and it's the pleasure and satisfaction layer. Um, so typically when this need isn't getting met. It's influenced by diet culture and beliefs around like, quote unquote, good versus bad foods, fears of eating too much, not being in control, that sort of thing. Um, the other part is not tu- not tuning into appetite, hunger, fullness, um, the, those sort of aspects of, of pleasure and satisfaction. 
So here we do a lot of experimentation with like what foods actually taste good, what will hit the spot in the moment, and how do you know that things are satisfying? Um, how do you tune into appetite? And I just find that this part of the work is really fun and enjoyable. And um, to me, it would totally fit into the whole ADHD thing, right? That we don't, the whole ADHD thing, <laughs> our tendency to just sort of blow through things rather than really spending the time to pause and to think about, no, what would really make me feel satisfied? Not just grabbing anything. Totally. Yes. I love and this that. can, yeah, this can help, help with people who are struggling with restriction or struggling with binging or bulimia and even with um, like the RFID, the avoidant um, eating disorder. It's, it's helpful for everybody. And so are you all about, I know that these are the good foods, right? And these are the foods that really have no food value, but kind of tuning into how do you feel in that moment and what is it that you want to eat? Like, how do you work through that struggle that this is, you know, not good for me, but it's what I really want? Yeah. So I, I would argue that there are actually like no bad foods, that all foods have value in some form or another. All foods provide energy. So again, kind of thinking about like going back to that idea of getting enough, right? Like if you're not getting enough food, it doesn't matter what types of food you're eating. As long as you start eating more, that will sort of move you through that layer. And so it doesn't matter. It can be a candy bar. Totally. It's better than starving yourself and not eating it. Exactly. Exactly. Like okay. if that need isn't being met, and we see that with, with food insecurity. Um, so for folks who maybe don't have as much access to food, you know, eating, um, I think I read in a book, like eating peaches that are canned in syrup is actually the healthier choice for a family with limited access to food than eating fresh peaches because it will provide more energy for the amount of money spent. So kind of keeping that in mind. And then also all of the research shows that when we see foods as bad or put them, at, put them off limits um, and kind of approach them with this diet mentality, they end up holding more power. And it's much easier than to, to overdo it with those foods when we feel some sort of permission. So with pleasure and satisfaction, the biggest thing is creating permission to have those foods unconditionally and trusting that your body is going to sort it out, that your body is not just going to crave Snickers bars forever. Your body is actually going to want some broccoli at some point. And that can be a hard thing for, for folks to come to terms with. But, but when that process occurs, it can be really powerful and really valuable. And it makes so much sense to our ADHD brains. I mean, we don't mm -hmm. like to be told what to do. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I can relate to that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, I love to go against the grain. <laughs> uh -huh. I love it. Yeah. So then like when all of these pieces are in place and have been in place for some time, because it's not, it's not a quick fix. It can take months. For some people, it can take years. Then we can start talking about gentle nutrition, 
which is more about, okay, like what nutrients could I add to my diet that would be supportive of brain health? And you know, I think you, you had a nutritionist on a couple of weeks ago who was talking about, you know, like omega-3s are great for an ADHD brain. But if you're not getting your needs met, if you're not getting enough food, the omega-3s aren't going to do anything to help you. So that's why gentle nutrition is sort of reserved for the very end with with disordered eating and eating disorders. I love how you not only have nutrition there, but it's gentle nutrition. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> I am not going to shove any anything down your throat. <laughs> so you've actually done this backwards because typically <laughs> when someone is struggling with, let's say they're struggling with their weight, you know, they read books, they go sign up for a program, and it's, it's all about the nutrition, and this is how many, you know, these are the food groups, and this is what you need, and it's, it's backwards now that I hear you go through this process. And I, I had to write it out, which is why I actually asked you to repeat it again, so that I could actually visually see it. But I love how that first step is you need to be eating regularly. Mm-hmm that yeah. you, you address that. And then once you address that, then it's, you know, how can you have adequate intake, meaning how can you plan ahead? How can you make it easy? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then once you somewhat master that, then you go to the variety and you talk about like avoidance and restrictive foods and why people are picky eaters. But You just want to make sure that you're getting enough variety, meaning you're not just eating one or two or three different foods. Right. Yes. Okay. And then once you get past that, then it's the big stuff that, or the fun Mm -hmm. stuff, I think, and looking at diet culture and that there is no such thing as good versus bad food. And you teach your, I don't know, students or clients to really get in tune with their own body and give Mm -hmm. themselves permission to basically eat what they want to eat and what they Mm -hmm. feel like they need at that time. Yeah, exactly. And then only then, (laughs) once they master all that, are they even allowed to think about nutrition. Yes, you nailed it, Tracy. brilliant. I (laughs) love it. Yeah. I just love it. And I keep thinking about my daughter, who I had mentioned before uh, we got on that my daughter was telling me that she thinks she had eating dis- uh, d- disordered eating. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, you did it. No, you didn't. But now <laughs> that you go through all these steps, yeah, she probably did. Because how do you be a teenage girl and not have disordered eating in our culture? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, for some people, they're starting more at the like variety stage or the more, more at the pleasure and satisfaction stage. But those are still forms or, or on the spectrum of disordered eating. Huh. And the thing is, that's where eating disorders start, right? With mm-hmm. disordered eating. Exactly. exactly. Okay. So do you have any tips around any of these specific mm-hmm. layers, I guess? On yeah, your- layers. Absolutely. I have so many, (laughs) Um, but I can even, you know, just share a couple. With regularity, I love creating visual cues. So I keep a jar of trail mix on my desk because even if I just see the trail mix, it reminds me to check in with my body and notice, oh, am I hungry? Could I use a snack? Has it been four hours since I've had anything? So, So having food visually available is one example of a tip. 
with adequacy. Um, I think I'd mentioned like scheduling in grocery store trips and making sure that you're buying enough food for the week or however long you have in between grocery trips. With variety, identifying new foods to try, scheduling in time for prepping. I, I have a lot of clients who are using meal delivery services now so that they don't have to do all of the work to come up with the variety, but they still get to you know do some easier cooking and, and have the variety within their meals. With pleasure and satisfaction, it is basically just tuning into appetite and desire. A lot of that is addressing social justice issues that are wrapped up in diet culture. Again, that's like why that's part of the work that I love the most. Diet culture basically tells us that if we engage in pleasure and satisfaction with food, then we're at risk for being bad or breaking rules or making mistakes. And so all of the work that I do with clients with ADHD, without ADHD, is basically kicking that to the curb and saying, like, screw diet culture. I get to enjoy food. I get to engage in pleasure. I get to have satisfaction. And when I do that, then I have a more um, compassionate, trusting relationship with food and with my body. So we address a lot of that in, in the pleasure and satisfaction category. So how do you link that with social and political Ooh. justice? Is it yeah. feminism and just this idea of, you know, women are supposed to look a certain way and I'm going to be quiet, you tell me. Yeah, that's absolutely a piece. And I think, I mean, we could do a whole series mm -hmm. of podcasts on this. <laughs> I bet. Um, but yeah, sort of the idea that like diet culture is born out of racism and sexism and classism and the idea that like a certain body size is somehow better than any other body size really gets in the way of people being able to listen to and trust their own bodies, which with ADHD, like it's already so hard. To, to trust our own bodies, right? Because like senses are um, disrupted. And mm -hmm. so being able to tune in in relation to food, I think can really help create more of that attunement in other areas of our life. So how do you, when you say, you know, that we need to learn how to tune into food and check in with our body and like, how do you do that? Yeah. So that goes back to that idea of interoceptive awareness. And one of the tools that I use the most with clients is a hunger and fullness scale. So it's zero to 10, and each number is associated with different physical, emotional, and mental symptoms. And zero is like, I'm so hungry, I haven't eaten in way too long, I'm gonna eat my own arm. And 10 is, oh my gosh, I ate two Thanksgiving dinners and I'm going <laughs> to burst, right? <laughs> um, and so the numbers are so individualized. And so it's, it's a process of identifying, like, how do you know when you're at a three on the hunger scale? For some people, like, maybe they don't notice that their stomach is grumbling and it's more like, oh, I can't focus on my work. So that sort of stuff. So getting more familiar with what these different stages of hunger and fullness feel like is just like one example of that. 
Okay. And so you call that your hunger scale? Yeah. Yeah. The hunger and fullness scale. And that's not, not my creation. Um, that's something I do use with clients. Okay. So let me think about that. So what you teach your clients to do is before they eat at any time, they need to check in with their body and use that hunger and fullness scale. Like, am I just eating because I'm bored or am I really hungry kind of thing? Do I feel hungry? I mean, it, are you going through your senses? Are you going through your body? Are you, like, is there more of a process or is it simply just checking in and how hungry am I? A little bit of both. At the beginning, I will often have clients check in with themselves every two hours and just notice and like fill out the hunger scale chart just to bring like more awareness to what does it feel like two hours after I've eaten? What does it feel like four hours after I've eaten? And just kind of noticing. It's sort of like driving a car where the more you do it, the more you practice, the more just sort of natural and ingrained it becomes. So like for me, I started out using the hunger and fullness scale in my own recovery process. But every time I'm eating, I'm not necessarily assigning a number or, or doing an entire body scan because I become more familiar with like, oh, yep, I'm getting into that hangry zone. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it just kind of becomes like second nature over time. But definitely doing more checking and more noticing of symptoms at the beginning. You know, that's so interesting because I certainly know how I feel right after I eat right after I eat too much, when I'm really hungry, but I've never even thought about how do you feel two hours after you eat? How do you feel four hours after you eat? I've never even thought about that. Right, right. Yeah. And that's what can be helpful in that pre-planning. Um, I, I don't know for you, but one of, like, one of my biggest issues that I still really struggle with is waiting until I'm way too hungry to eat. So just having more awareness of like, oh, once I start to feel this way, that's like a sign that maybe in about an hour I should eat. Yeah, it can just be such a helpful tool. You know, and that's even more interesting because I think what diet culture does to women is, most women, frankly, mm-hmm. not just ADHD women, is this idea that, you know, the hungrier you can get, the better, yep. that you should only be ravenous when you're eating, which yes. probably makes you eat all kinds of stuff you really don't even want had you, you know, been more mindful, I guess. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That you end up kind of swinging from one end of the hunger and fullness (laughs) scale to the other, right? It's it's a pendulum effect. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not, you know, it's not always a bad thing to, to forget to eat or to overeat, but it's when these become chronic experiences that it can it can kind of get in the way of our body's natural rhythms and natural cycles. So one of the things that you mentioned, um, which right away my ears perked up, you talked mm-hmm. about meal delivery services. And mm-hmm. I've done a few of them, but I mm-hmm. always felt like I ate too much and I wasn't really sure how, you know, the quality. Do mm-hmm. you have some that you use that you could recommend? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's so unique to each person, um, kind of depending on like skill level. And again, like where they're at in that process, I've enjoyed HelloFresh because they have a lot of variety. The meals are pretty simple to prepare, but there's a lot of different components. 
I've heard really good things about Blue Apron from clients as well. Um, I would say those are the two that I'm most familiar with. I think the other thing that can be helpful is just like going to the hot bar at different stores. Um, and, so, you know, if, if you're not wanting to maybe cook, being able to get pre-prepared foods. Um, so that, that would be like another option. Okay. With HelloFresh, though, I mean, you've, you've cooked from their boxes. You feel like the ingredients, their quality, you're eating food that's good for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we go from disordered eating to eating disorders, which, mm-hmm. I mean, you can die from them. They're really, really mm-hmm. serious. Yeah. What do you recommend if you know there is something wrong, you feel like you are literally in the midst of an eating disorder? Mm-hmm. I don't even know if that's the proper way to phrase it. Yeah. What should you do? Reaching out for support is number one. Um, and depending on like financial situations, maybe it is joining free support groups as a starting place. If you know, if you have insurance and you have access to to care, being able to get a therapist and a dietitian and a doctor, getting checked medically because there are medical complications that come from eating disorders, which often are not very obvious at first, um, but can have really long-term consequences on the body. So definitely seeking, seeking as much care as possible, building community as well, because it can feel really isolating to be in the midst of an eating disorder. And so having other people that are struggling with similar or, or even different, but still you know, um, eating disorder experience, that can be really, really helpful. If you don't have health care, if you can't afford to reach mm-hmm. out to an expert, mm-hmm. are there any resources? Is there anything that you can do? I'm just worried if someone's sitting here listening yeah. to this and they just, you know, they know they need some, they need help, but they don't know right. what to do. Right. Yeah, definitely. There are, there are lots of free groups. If you just, you know, go online and Google like free eating disorder support um, in your area. There, there are definitely groups. I would say stay away from any kind of Overeaters Anonymous, um, anything like that, because those are pretty much the opposite of eating disorder support. And yeah, often too, therapists will offer sliding scale spots. And so just ask, you know, ask if someone is able to, um, to provide care at a lower rate if if that's something, again, that you have access to. That's a great suggestion. So where is the line? You know, again, I'm thinking of that listener who's saying, mm-hmm. well, do I have an eating disorder or is it just disordered eating? Just disordered eating. You know right, what I'm saying. Right, <laughs> yeah. How do you know that you've crossed the line? Yeah. And it's serious. Yeah. For me, I knew that I had kind of crossed that line from, you know, struggling with food or maybe even disordered eating into an eating disorder when the distress that it caused for me was so overwhelming that I was struggling in other areas of my life. And and this is where the values piece comes in. So school and friendships were really, really important to me. And I was not going to class. I was I was failing classes. I couldn't concentrate. I didn't really care about school anymore. 
with friends. I, you know, I wasn't hanging out with friends. I was avoiding social situations because there might be food there. So when these really important things were impacted because of my relationship with food, I was like, oh, something needs to change. If I, if I want to live the life that I really want, something has to change. So that's, that's sort of where, in my experience, the line was. I think the line can be different for everybody. It's basically like, are you struggling? Great. Go get help. And maybe get help when you are experiencing disordered eating before you fall over into that yes. line of an eating disorder. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And that could even be, you know, starting with resources um, like books. So I always recommend the newest edition of Intuitive Eating is fantastic. Also, Christy Harrison's book, Anti-Diet, is an absolute must read, I think, for everybody. It's an incredible book, and it goes into so many of these pieces that we've talked about. And her podcast as well, Food Psych, is is a fantastic resource. So that's another option for people who maybe can't access um, care and support, or maybe aren't ready to. I will have them in the show notes. Did you say the book was Intuitive Eating? Yeah. Yep. So Intuitive Eating, the fourth edition, it actually just came out this summer. It is Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. Okay. I will find it and I will put it in the show notes. And then the anti-diet, is that another book? Is that what you were saying? It is. Yeah. And that, that came out in January of this year. The woman who wrote it, her name is Christy Harrison. And all of these women who wrote these books are dietitians in the eating disorder field. Okay. And then Insight is her podcast? Oh, sorry. Food Psych. Food Psych. Yep. Yeah. Like yeah. Um, P-S-Y-C-H. Correct. Okay. Food Psych. And that's Christy Harrison's podcast. Yes. Okay. Before... I let you go. I've got a couple mm-hmm. questions. Well, follow-ups okay. to what you just said and just things that I've been wondering about. Okay. okay. So I love intermittent fasting. <laughs> and it makes me feel good. So if the goal is to really pay attention to your body, what is your response to that? I think I have a reaction to that because of working with eating disorders, Um, because often that sort of thing can lead to disordered eating or an eating disorder. But, you know, if you're in that place where you've like kind of gone through all of those other stages and you're in the gentle nutrition place and it's not activating for disordered eating behaviors, great. Like if that works for you, awesome it's not going to be helpful for everyone. It's not going to work for everyone. I totally get that. And I don't think when I was younger, it would have worked for me. But I think as I've gotten older, I just don't need to eat as much. And I don't feel good when I eat as much. So I love that response. So bottom line, and I just agree with you so much in what you're saying. And I agree with this in everything, that it all comes back to you and really paying attention to where you are and how you feel. Totally. Love that response. Okay, second question for you. I have had several requests in our Facebook group, ADHD Mm -hmm. for Smartass Women, where members have asked me if we could put trigger warnings before any of our posts 
that have to do with weight, dieting, food, etc. Now, it is so hard to monitor our Facebook group. People mm -hmm. have no idea. We have over 16,000 members. I've got 10 moderators on it, and we're already stretched thin. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's just hard to stay on top of everything, but especially this, because then if I did it, I would feel such an obligation that we need to make sure that nothing gets passed, right? Right, right. I also feel like, especially when it comes to food, which you just can't get away from, it just doesn't make sense to me to constantly, you know, avoid it. Um, mm -hmm. I personally think you kind of have to face these things head on, but... I also, in the back of my mind, think, well, maybe you don't have enough information and you're wrong. So how would you respond to that? Ooh, that's a really good question. I can't imagine the time and energy that it takes to, to moderate a Facebook group. So I have a lot of admiration for you, and especially with knowing you have ADHD as well. I imagine that could be really <laughs> overwhelming. Um, it kind of stresses me out thinking about it. Yeah. But... <laughs> You know, I think I think putting it out there for the members who are posting to to maybe do some self moderating and to be aware of giving any kind of diet advice, talking about your own diet, labeling foods as good or bad, that sort of thing. Talking about weight and weight loss can have a really negative impact on everyone, um, but especially those who struggle with with food and body. So, so kind of framing it as a like, do no harm, you know, how can we support each other in the community to, to not harm one another? That's how I could imagine maybe approaching it. I don't think it would be a, you know, a solution and it wouldn't necessarily address every single post, but my hope is that people can maybe just be more aware of their impact. I like that. So you're saying I perhaps would create a post and try to bring awareness to what their comments and posts might be doing to other people yeah without specifically saying every single thing needs a trigger warning that has to do with right. body food and diet i love right. that i love that and even just talking with you brings me more awareness and i just i cannot even begin to tell you how much i love your food pyramid because it makes so much sense. I, I'm going to run and share it with my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yes. Okay. So I've got two questions and then I'm going to let you go. I've taken enough okay. of your time. Alita and I had a lot of tech difficulties and we ended up having to switch and record this on Zoom. So I'm really hoping that the quality is going to reflect how good the podcast is. And so I have no idea how long we've been on, but it's just been so easy <laughs> and flowing. You know, I just kept going and I just hope it's not super, super long. <laughs> what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? Yes, I knew you were going to ask this question. <laughs> and so I have been thinking about it all week and I came up with like eight workarounds and then really thought about like, what is the one thing that I have been able to stick with and that has actually been helpful? And it's actually Google Calendar has been a lifesaver. And I know yes. that that sounds like simple. It's maybe no. boring. Okay. Yeah. I put everything into it, including like reminders to walk my dog and alerts for yes. taking breaks to eat and drink water. Because I also forget to drink water all the time. And the color coding just like really satisfies some part Wait of a my minute. soul. You can color code on Google Calendar? Yes, you can. Every, ah! Yes, everything can be different colors. Yeah, it's very, very satisfying to like the perfectionist part of me. 
Oh my gosh. Well, that was yeah. worth talking to you all yes. by itself. <laughs> there you go. Solved. <laughs> yeah. You know, Alita, I have been struggling as well with calendars where mm-hmm. literally for years I've got a bunch of, you know, the calendars like in books, like planner type yeah. calendars. I've also got this single page paper calendar. <laughs> um, I was on Apple calendar. I was on I can't remember what it was, but it kind of linked the two together. And I had all these calendars and it was insanity. And literally two months ago, I said, I am just going to stick with Google Calendar. I'm going to try mm-hmm. it. And I cannot rave enough about it. You are so <laughs> right on there. <laughs> awesome. I was like, I don't want to be boring. <laughs> no, I feel like my life finally, yeah. it makes sense. It's so simple because yes. I go to one place. And totally. it's on my watch. It's on, well, you can't get Google Calendar on your watch, but there is an app, and I can't remember what it is right now, that links to your watch so you can actually see what's on Google Calendar mm-hmm. on your watch. So it's on my right. phone. It's everything. Yes, yes, yes. yes. That is yes. a brilliant key to living. Yes, okay. yes. And so I, I think that would focused your- me. Oh, go ahead. No, no. I, I think that what you gave me was your number one ADHD workaround. But awesome. it's also your key to living <laughs> successfully with ADHD. Exactly. <laughs> yes. That that and humor. You know, I think just being able to like laugh at myself and and be silly and bring levity um, has been totally. so huge. So totally. So Alita, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. But yeah, thank you. before I let you go, is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to tell us about? Yeah, I am actually putting together an eating with ADHD course where we are going to sort of work through all of the different layers on the pyramid. It's not necessarily for people with full-blown eating disorders, but for people who are kind of like in the in recovery or people with disordered eating or just food and body concerns, I am hoping to release the course um, before the end of the year. That's my goal. And it will be on my website, which I think you, you put in the show notes. Is that? Yes. I'm okay. going to put that in the show notes. But what, what is this? I'm hoping to release it before the end of the year. Come on. Give us a day. Okay. Well, okay. Oh gosh. You're, you're making me commit to something. I, my goal is by November 1st um, to launch it. Okay. Yes. It's something I've been working on for a really long time and I think just, just putting it out there. (laughs) So how about if I, how about if we do this? If you get it ready by November 1st, you know how (laughs) we're not supposed to post any links in the group. But I will make sure that we post that link in our group. That would be incredible, Tracy. Thank you. I just think it's so important. And I love what you're doing. And I just love your whole anti-diet approach. Because, yes, we've been sold a bill of goods about food Mm -hmm. and diet culture and all that crap because we are women. Yes. Anyway. (laughs) Um, So where can people find you if they want to know more about you, your website and all that? Yeah. Yeah, my website. And I'm on Instagram. My private practice is called Wise Heart Nutrition, and my Instagram is wiseheart underscore nutrition. Um, Tracy, before I go, if I could just make one request, and that would be to leave out the part from the beginning about um, quote-unquote obesity and um, weight as a problem, because 
these ideas are so tangled up in eating disorders and in diet culture. And the term, in quotes, obesity is in itself oppressive. So that, that's actually language that I really try and stay away from and, and even challenge in my sessions with clients and in my work. Okay, so can you explain to me why is the term obesity oppressive? And I love this conversation because, you know, these statistics that I pulled about, you know, these struggles, you know, with obesity that ADHD women have, that there's five to ten times more likely to have a struggle with obesity. And, you know, these other statistics, they are pulled from books and research around ADHD. So I love that you're, you know, I don't want to remove them because I would rather learn and I would rather have our listeners learn. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And I so appreciate that. Okay. So explain to me why is obesity a problem? That yeah. Word. Yeah, absolutely. So there's this belief that weight and health are tied to one another, and there isn't actually any evidence that substantiates that claim. And the terms obesity and overweight were created by a system that is wanting everyone to be in a thin body, is wanting everyone to be in a cisgendered body. And we know that weight loss is not effective, it's not sustainable, it's not helpful. And so using these terms basically just like sets people up to feel bad about themselves, sets people up for quote unquote failure because weight loss is not a realistic outcome. For these specific people. So what you're saying is that people have all different body shapes and they can be healthy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like body diversity is inherent and fatness is no different than tallness. Okay. Are there any other words that we use when we're referring to, am I going to yeah. say the wrong thing, like weight and health yeah. and all of that, right? Yeah. That, that yeah. we shouldn't be using that are just not totally. appropriate. Totally. Yeah. So not true. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So more appropriate terms would be people in larger bodies. Um, fat is something that is being reclaimed by the fat acceptance movement. So I, yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily like use it individually with people one-on-one -on -one unless they've named that as okay. But I think in general, talking about fat bodies sort of reduces the stigma that is associated with, with being in a, at a higher weight. Okay, that makes total sense. I want to keep it in so that we can learn rather than just delete it and nobody knows, right? Nobody learns right. from it. Yeah, I so appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay, so thank you again. And that is what I have for you for this week. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. If you like this episode with Alita, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too can discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help in that regard. For me, they're like 
those little gold stars we used to get on our work when we were kids in school. One more thing, if you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio message or reach out to me at tracy at tracyoutsuka.com. So that's my email. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.